Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 27th of August and we are back from our summer holidays. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week we explore the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam asking what is it, who are the winners and losers and how this mega project will change the region. Egypt has a significant vulnerability when it comes to water. It depends on the Nile significantly and it has done so for many, many generations going back even to the times of the pharaohs. And then the New Arab Voices reporter Nick McAlpin talks with members of the Mandaean community about their journey of reform and survival after years of religious persecution in the Middle East. After the invasion of Iraq, the community suffered a lot of violence Many were killed. Many had to leave their homes, their shops. But first... Events in Afghanistan have moved quickly, dramatically and tragically. Here to discuss the Taliban takeover and the ongoing crisis gripping Afghanistan and the world is new Arab journalist Kamal Afzali. Hi Kamal, thanks for joining us. Hi, Hugo. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, Kamal, can you briefly just explain what's happened over the past two or three weeks in Afghanistan? The the Taliban launched a lightning offensive across the country. Uh, Their push to to seize territory really began in in April when President Joe Biden uh, finally declared the withdrawal date for US troops. That was a major morale boost for the Taliban because it sparked the drawdown, not only of the troop numbers, but of support for uh, Afghan forces, uh, air support, crucial and reconnaissance, as well as as, as contractors who maintain and sustain uh, the Afghan army's air capacity. The speed and the scale of the offensive surprised everyone. Cities were falling like dominoes. The Taliban had a strategy of carrying out negotiations for troops to surrender en masse, posts, bases, districts, and that sort of all concluded when Kabul fell on August the 15th. The Taliban are now in control. Do we know what form the Taliban will take in this new era? Are they going to be the same repressive group that they were prior to 2001? We're seeing a carefully and efficiently managed PR campaign, which has been going on for a while anyway. The, The Taliban have harnessed evolving technologies to their advantage like any sharp political or militia movement. The image that they're projecting to the West is that very much that they're going to uphold women's rights, the rights of minorities, uh, that they are very much a Taliban 2.0. But the reality on on the ground is different. Till now, women have, have been given no clear guidance on whether they can return to work. A lot of the professors, analysts, experts I've spoken to with, within Afghanistan have basically said that the, the Taliban really need to change the reality and not just the image they project, because that's what's going to be the the major criterion for international support, which Afghanistan so desperately needs. The situation at the airport has been incredibly worrying to watch. 
And just last night, three explosions. I believe the death toll is still rising. Can you just explain what the situation is at the airport? Are planes still leaving? Is it still operational? But from what I know and people I've spoken to, there are flights still. Certainly the UK is in the final phases of its evacuation mission. Um, I think there's something like nine flights leaving today, and then it's going to wrap up its efforts uh, with, with troops departing the next few days. Any flights that are happening are going to be US military planes. Loads of other <coughs> Western nations who had carried out their, their evacuation efforts have terminated them in the past few days. But But the crowds keep on coming to the airport. It's a mix of actual genuine fear and uh, hopelessness at the future of Afghanistan under the Taliban, which are driving these people to the airport. The situation on the ground is really, really bad, Hugo. Um, People have been camping out for days, blistering heat. It's August in Kabul. The the Taliban have blocked the access of more people, but still they're growing. I think there's 10,000 people waiting outside the airport around the entrances. And the, and the images of the attacker are really, really haunting. Um, a terrible, terrible suicide bombing believed to be perpetrated by uh, Afghanistan's Islamic State affiliate. Kamal, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Hugo. With the view from Washington, D.C., the New Arab's U.S. correspondent, Brooke Anderson, sent this report. Over the past two weeks, the American public has been gripped by the story of the U.S. withdrawal and evacuations from Afghanistan. Initially generally seen as a hasty, bungled operation, it quickly drew praise for the way the U.S. military managed to evacuate large numbers of people. Moreover, they were now coordinating with their NATO allies, some of whom had criticized America's lack of communication in its mission. Back in the U.S., offers of help immediately poured in from regular people. Among the more notable stories was a woman from Tennessee who helped secure the evacuation of the Afghan girls' robotic team. Within two weeks, more than 100,000 Americans and Afghan allies had evacuated through the Kabul airport. But on Thursday, two bombs at the airport killed at least 13 U.S. service members and more than 80 Afghans. Will these attacks reverse the American public's goodwill toward the evacuations? Time will tell whether or not this goes down in history as a success. Head over to the New Arabs website and you can read Brooke's story all about the U.S. civilians eager to help incoming Afghan refugees. Construction on the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, began in 2010. An ambitious $5 billion mega-project to build a gravity dam on the Blue Nile River in Ethiopia. The dam is located approximately 45 kilometres east of the border with neighbouring Sudan, and the river runs from Ethiopia and eventually joins to form the famed Nile River, that runs through Egypt. Once fully operational, the GERD will be the largest hydroelectric dam in Africa and the seventh largest in the world, with a planned capacity to produce 6.45 gigawatts of electricity. For millions of Ethiopians, particularly in rural areas, steady and reliable access to electricity 
can be the key to lifting them out of poverty. While hailed as a vital engineering triumph in Ethiopia, not to mention a source of intense national pride for some, further downstream in Sudan and Egypt, the GERD is viewed with suspicion, anger and a deep concern for the future, a concern that has been growing for many years. But what is the GERD and what purpose does it serve? Who are the winners and losers and what's up for grabs? And how will this mammoth project change the local environment? Well, Ethiopia has a lot to gain, primarily because the dam would produce relatively cheap electricity for development in uh, uh, Ethiopia. One of the this is Dr. John Mukum Mumbaku, the author of the book Governing the River Nile Basin, The Search for a New Legal Regime, speaking to us from Weber State University in Utah, where he works as a professor of economics. The dam would produce a lot of electricity and would provide Ethiopia with the type of electricity that it needs, especially for rural electrification. From that point of view, yes, Ethiopia would benefit a lot. Front and centre for the GERD is, unsurprisingly, the production of electricity. According to the World Bank, 91 million Ethiopians live on just $5.5 a day, while 31.1 million of them live on less than $2 a day. Ethiopia claims the dam will be able to provide affordable electricity to as much as 60% of the population, boosting development in the country and lifting countless families out of poverty. The dam also represents potential commercial benefits for the country. But given the amount, the fact that the dam is going to produce more electricity than Ethiopia can actually use. It is possible that some of that electricity could be sold to Sudan for development. And so Sudan will also benefit. Affordable electricity for Ethiopians with extra leftover for the Sudanese? So far, so good. Additionally, it's claimed that the dam will be able to control the flow of water. With cooperation from Ethiopia... The dam can actually be be used to control floods in uh, Sudan. During the wet season, the dam can be used to hold back water, preventing floods. And during the dry season, water can be released, in theory, preventing shortages. Sensible water controls and boundless cheap energy. So what's the problem? Uh, The downstream states, Egypt and Sudan, are basically anxious about the absence of a legally binding agreement on the dam this is Mohammed Suleiman, scholar for the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. At the beginning of the 2010s, Egypt was consumed by poor cold turmoil and instability um, associated with the Tahrir Revolution. And despite the Egyptian anxiety about the dam, Cairo really didn't have the bandwidth to deal with the issue. So when the political situation started to stabilize around 2014-2015, Cairo was quick to make moves, diplomatic moves, trying to resolve the situation. On the back foot after the revolution, Egypt viewed the issue as critical and quickly became a vocal voice on the dam, raising objections to the project which they saw as a threat to their resources. Additionally, they made diplomatic moves directed at Sudan, whose position subsequently shifted from an initially supportive stance to a more cautious view. Egypt has a significant vulnerability when it comes to water. 
He depends on the Nile significantly, and he has done so for many, many generations, going back even to the times of the pharaohs. And if you look at the map of Egypt, you see that the Egyptian population is located along the banks of the Nile River all the way into the Nile Delta. So water is very important to Egypt. Egypt's arguments revolve around two treaties, which they insist guarantees them access to the waters of the Nile. The first was the 1929 Anglo-Egyptian Treaty, which guaranteed Egypt and Sudan access to the waters of the Nile. And the second, a 1959 bilateral treaty between Egypt and Sudan. Every time there is a discussion on a way forward, the Egyptians and the Sudanese always refer to something they call historical uh, or acquired rights to the waters of the Nile. Uh, And then they talk about international law. Now, if you talk to an Ethiopian official, the Ethiopian will tell you, There's no fairness in that system because all the water is granted to Sudan and Egypt. But uh, Ethiopian uh, officials were arguing more than 85% of the water going to the Nile River comes from the uh, highlands of Ethiopia. So the argument this official was giving was that, okay, we supply over uh, 85% of the water going to the Nile, but we are not allowed to use any of it. Cairo is worried about the coming loss of water share from the Nile, which provides Egypt with 90% of its own water. For Khartoum, in addition to the uncertainties surrounding the water flow, Khartoum is worried about the damage that Jord could do to the Nice dams and water management facilities. Uh, so to summarize the disagreement, Cairo and Khartoum want a legally binding agreement that includes drought mitigation protocols and dispute resolution mechanism with Ethiopia. Drought mitigation protocols and dispute resolution mechanisms. Two points that, if negotiations to this point are to be believed, are absolute tenants for Egypt moving forward. But what are these talks? They really started with the Declaration of Principles in 2015. That set a framework for negotiations it was a framework that aimed at de-escalating the situation, going through diplomacy to reach a final agreement. That final agreement is currently missing in action. Disagreements over the dam project have rumbled on for years now, with no real progress made. And as these disagreements have continued, construction on the dam has not slowed, only serving to increase tensions between the three states. The lack of progress in talks has prompted parties on both sides to seek outside mediation. To resolve the impasse, help has been sought from the African Union, the Arab League, the US and the Europeans. Uh, There is a feeling that the African Union, who has been the primary negotiator for the last four or five years, failed to deliver any tangible results. Therefore, Sudan and Egypt want to have an active role for the UN uh, explicitly and other international bodies who could try to reach a step-by-step or gradual agreements between the three countries, at least to diffuse the situation in the short term. When it comes to international disagreements, the UN is an obvious fit, although they haven't jumped at the opportunity with one UN Security Council official branding the issue to be, quote, outside the scope 
and capacity of the Security Council, end quote. But according to Dr Mbaku, such a search for outside mediation could be misguided and counterproductive. They are running around the world trying to convince international organizations and powerful countries to intervene. The dam is an African problem. The Nile River is an African problem. Are you telling me that after all these years of independence, Africans are still unable to sit together and talk to each other and resolve their problems and still have to go to their former colonial powers to ask for assistance in resolving problems that are very unique to them? My answer is no, they shouldn't be doing that. As it stands, a pathway to a solution is yet to be found. But on all sides, there does appear to be a desire for diplomacy. And although the spectre of conflict has peered into the dispute, mainly from those outside the discussions, such a rash move is not anticipated. Well, that has been suggested. In fact, many Egyptian leaders, going back to Sadat, have argued that if it is necessary, they will go to war to secure water. But I think that is a... A fool's dream. Right now, you have two downstream nations that are highly dependent on the water. And right now, there is a need, and everyone agrees that there is a need for an agreement that uh, diffuses a situation and can make sure that this part of the world, this region that has more than 250 million people, will not be destabilized. And we want to de-escalate any chances of armed conflict. I think that this is what we should agree on. If this turned into a conflict, the ramifications would be very dire on everyone. If and when a working mechanism is established, Ethiopia might come out on top. Alternatively, all of Egypt's demands might be met and their water needs secured for the future. If there is going to be some sort of winner from this issue, then it's probably too early to tell. But if you're looking for a loser, that much is pretty clear. When you build a, a dam, you're, you're basically interfering with the natural flow of water. So that is going to have an impact on the way the ecosystem in the area has been up to that point. The environmental impact that the GERD will create has been a continuing source of worry, and with the UN's recent dire assessment of the climate crisis the globe is experiencing, it's easy to see why. The main environmental concern is the impact that the dam will have on the water level. A lowering of the water level can then set off a chain of unintended but dire consequences. These effects include changes in surface water level, groundwater levels in shallow and deep aquifers, saltwater intrusion and increases in soil salinity which could affect crop yields. This is from a 2019 paper assessing the potential impacts of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, published in the journal Sustainability. The estimated storage time ranged from three to seven years. During this storage period, the Egyptian share of water could be exhausted. This would affect different sectors in Egypt, especially the agricultural sector, which consumes 84% of Egypt's water resources that come mainly from the Nile River. With less water available to them, Egyptian agriculture could be forced to grow crops that require less water. These crops include non-voracious crops, which means less water leading to less recharge of the groundwater aquifer, including deep and shallow aquifers. 
Non-voracious crops go further and could damage the soil properties in the delta, which is famous for its high quality, because less irrigation water means less soil leaching, which could increase the salinity of the soil that has accumulated over time, thereby creating undesirable amounts of salts that are not suitable for the cultivation process. The environmental changes that could be wrought by the GERD lowering the water level would be severe for the Egyptian environment and subsequently Egyptian farmers. Dr Mbaku again. There is a possibility that the dry season in that part of the world would be more intense than it has ever been, which means that there has to be uh, put into the agreement ways to manage a harsher dry season. And of course, one way to do that would be to find ways to save a lot of the water that you have during the rainy season because the rains may be heavier than before. And so you can find ways to create opportunities for you to capture water during that period and then be able to release it into the Nile during the harsher dry season. So whatever mitigation mechanisms they are planning on, they may want to redouble them when they take into consideration climate change. Climate change is not something that affects one country alone, because climate doesn't stop at the boundary. Without the waters of the Nile, Egypt would not survive. Without the energy promised by the dam, development in Ethiopia would continue to falter, and more Ethiopian families would fall further into poverty. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is not perfect, but there is a chance that with oversight cooperation, compromise and shared understanding of risks and benefits, all sides could reap rewards. The first step needed is for everyone to sit down and talk. The second step is for everyone to listen. Mohamed Suleiman again. Uh, there is a feeling that the real problem why the, the three countries are not reaching an agreement is Ethiopia is looking into the Nile as a geopolitical tool and this is where people are started to be anxious and willing to escalate further. I think that this is where the problem is. The Nile shouldn't be politicized or being used as a geopolitical tool because that means that countries would be willing to go further than diplomacy and negotiations. And Dr. John Mbaku. Considering the amount of electricity that is going to be generated, I believe that countries in the region, including Egypt and Sudan, can benefit. If the three countries engage in the kind of cooperation that you usually see between, uh, say, countries in Europe, for example, they can benefit from each other in terms of trade and cultural exchanges, development, fighting uh, climate change, extremism, terrorism, and so on and so on. The problem here, the problem we have here is unwillingness of these three countries to sit and start looking at each other as neighbors, people that they can benefit from, not just in terms of water management, but also in terms of other aspects of poverty, eradication, and economic development. And so with that kind of cooperation, they can come up with a mutually beneficial agreement that will allow the three countries to benefit. I think that if these countries cooperate, they will generate enough benefits to raise the standard of living of all those three countries much higher than they are now. But if they continue to fight each other, they will remain stagnant in the situation that they are now for many years to come.
The Middle East is home to an array of religions, from Sunni, Shia and Ibadi Islam, to various Christian denominations and to smaller creeds like the Druze and Yazidi faiths. One lesser-known group is the ethno-religious Mandaean community, who practice an ancient religion that centres on John the Baptist, and accordingly, ritual baptism. However, like many religious minorities, the past two decades have proven to be a period of serious upheaval and a fight for survival. The New Arab Voices' Nick McAlpin spoke with community leaders to learn more. Like any other religions, you know, you have a god, you have prophets, Adam, Nuh, and Johanna, John the Baptist in English. We call him Yahya Yahana. This is Dr. Leila Arumi, spokesperson for the Mandaean Human Rights Group and the head of the International Mandaean Women's Organization. The Mandaean of Iraq is a religious and ethnic minority that lived in southern Iraq and Iran for almost 2,000 years. There are currently between 60 and 100,000 Mandaeans worldwide, according to the Worlds of Mandaean Priests project. They lived mainly near the rivers and near the Marsh Arabs in Ahwaz in Iran and in Iraq in Basra, Mara and Nasiriya and subsequently moved into Baghdad. The Mandaeen have their own language, which is the Aramaic, Mandaic Aramaic. And the religion is one of the last living Gnostic religions actually in the world. As Gnostics, or Noahs as the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy puts it, Mandaeans are part of a group of faiths that were prominent during the first few hundred years AD. They believe special mystical quote-unquote insight is key to freedom in paradise. But despite their religion setting them apart from others, the Mandaean community, just like the rest of the region's population, has not been immune from recent history, especially since 2003. After the invasion of Iraq, the community suffered a lot of violence. Many were killed. Many had to leave their homes, their shops. Their shops were taken and their goldsmith shops were confiscated. And hence, there was a very large exit of them after 2006 and after the violence and the sectarian violence that happened then among the Iraqi communities themselves. Leila believes that what happened to the Mandaeans in Iraq equates to genocide. The community were also heavily discriminated against in Iran after the 1979 revolution, forcing many to flee. Due to the violence they faced, most now live in various countries across the world. But Leila feels resettlement efforts have failed to consider the vulnerabilities of her community. If they are small in numbers, if you distribute them haphazardly all over the globe, in every corner of the world, like for the Mandai in 22 countries, and you put 100 here and 300 there, and not even in the same cities in these countries, like in Britain, Now we have people in Manchester, in London, in other places. I am an only Mandai in Scotland. In that case, it is very difficult to keep the community, culture, tradition, religion. Leila says this also creates problems for those hoping to get married 
given Mendaism does not permit marriage to people of other faiths. But despite the vast distances that separate the community's members and the problems this creates, efforts have been made by organisers to bring people together. Among those involved is Dr. Suhaib Nashi, president of the Mandaean Human Rights Group and honorary president of the Mandaean Associations Union. 1999, 2000, we created the Mandaean Group, which is a virtual community group, had about 4,000 people who connected everybody online on a daily basis. We had before, you know, 500 email a day. That was only email based. We thought of trying to connect everybody all over the world with some sort of emergency communication to the need of the refugees, for the need of the community, for the religious purposes. When they were in Iraq, Suhaib says, revealing controversial facts about the mundane creed could have serious repercussions. Now, with their newfound freedom, the religion is undergoing a transformation, democratising understanding of the faith. So now we have the freedom to say, but the knowledge is not there for everybody because historically the knowledge was only for a few you know, religious families and things. So now on a multiple stages, we have to educate our leaders, our teachers, educate our generations, older and younger, with the language, with the religion, and trying to pass that to our young generation. To help with these developments, the Mandaeans are hoping to create a place of learning for their faith. We think of having a center, the knowledge center. We call it the Mandaean House of Knowledge, Beit al-Ma'rifah in Arabic. And that, we think of that could have multiple responsibilities. One is gathering all our documents. The second is teaching and teaching the Mandaya religion to our young generation Mandayans or to our wannabe religious men, you know, like who wants to be like priest or something. Publications are very important, printing and publishing and having conferences and the meetings with people like you and others. However, while they aim to cement their culture, the Mandaeans also face challenges created by damage to the natural world. Because of the pollution in waters, we're having a lot of trouble. A lot of places we cannot even baptize and running waters because it's polluted by environmental things and it's horrible. For a religion so dedicated to baptism, this is a serious concern. Among the solutions has been a move by many priests to accept pools as being valid for baptism. It is this ability to adapt which should prove key to the survival of the Mandaean way of life. This is important to recognise, having recently seen in the Faith's New Year in July. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself and Nick McAlpin, with additional help from Rosie McCabe, Brooke Anderson and Kamal Afzali. Our theme music was by Omar Al-Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for the latest news from the region. <laughs>